Hello, everybody. My name is Stella. Welcome to episode five of the Mercuranians podcast. It is currently 1.17 p.m. Monday, April 11th. How are you doing today, Cam? I'm doing good. I'm ready to talk about sect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, this episode's not going to be quite as um, delineation-based or archetype-based. This one's going to be a little bit more um, technique. Yeah, I mean, there's there's going to be um, just some general discussions about kind of the nature of the planets. And it's going to kind of summarize a couple of points that we've talked about in some of the planet episodes. Um, so we'll talk a bit about qualities we've mentioned and kind of summarize it all and have a discussion, I guess, about how it contributes to the concept of sect in traditional astrology, which is um, really an important, really a really important gateway into looking at uh, just how the different planetary interactions are affecting um, the chart. All right. Well, do you um, do you want to get us started talking about uh, the basics here? Yeah, definitely. So sect is going to be the difference between day and night, um, whether it's going to be in a chart or when you're talking about teams of planets in the chart. So um, the sun is going to determine the sect, whether you are a day or a night chart, and um, the sun is going to be the diurnal sect leader, whereas the moon is going to be the nocturnal sect leader. So on Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I just said, yeah, like basically, sect is just another name for team, really. That's how I. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And throughout the episode, I'm sure you'll hear us both referring to them as like the day team, the night team, diurnal, nocturnal team. Mm -hmm. um, on the diurnal team, there is going to be the sun, Jupiter, and Saturn. And then on the nocturnal team, we're going to have the moon, Venus, and Mars yep so um it's basically like thinking about two different political factions um kind of working against each other and one of them just like in real life is kind of going to be in charge and the other one's kind of going to be battling for power in a way and so or potentially creating problems so it's going to be important to understand which planets are like on your team or working for you or working in your favor versus planets that are um, essentially working harder to help manifest positive outcomes for you. Right. Um, you could also imagine um, the team that is not in power. So the one that does have the power is going to be whatever sect your chart is. Um, the team that's not in power could be speaking a different language and trying so hard to communicate what they want with the rest of the chart, but it's just not being heard. It's not being mm -hmm. received and vice versa. Yeah, I, I really love what you just said about like, it's a different language, because it's like in so many ways, and we'll talk about like all the different qualifications that kind of separate them in these groups. There's so much of, a, of like this notion between um, the nature of the planets and, you know, similar nature allows them to communicate or be, you know, like minded in a way, and that can give them a, a sympathy to connecting with each other. But when we're talking about planets on different sects or on different teams, um, they're just, they have a much more difficult time interacting with each other. There's like another 
effort that you have to make or that that has to be made for those planets to communicate so when you're when we start looking at i mean the myriad of other things in astrology for assessing planetary condition the first layer is always going to kind of come back to looking at the sect of the planets and this basic idea of you know is it with the team in favor or is it on the other team yeah exactly and kind of tying in what you said about politics earlier um, if you imagine, let's say you're a Democrat and you're a room full of Democrats and somebody makes a comment about, I don't know, healthcare, there's going to be a lot more like agreement and you can assume that that's just going to kind of be understood and what you mean and what you say and people are going to be on the same page. If you have a room that's full of mixed political parties as the natal chart is where we have different sects of planets in the one chart and you say hey how does everybody feel about free health care you're going to have some dissonance there there's going to be disagreement there's going to be a lot of different viewpoints and different energies and attitudes towards it and so that can be that same kind of energy that same kind of energy here where it's like we all understand what's happening at hand here, but like, what are we doing with it? How are we treating it? What is going to be the consequence of this action or event? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I think it's so important to look at because it's like, as you said, what's the consequence? Sect is really going to show you in a lot of ways, like the final outcome of a matter that you're kind of analyzing in the chart. So if it comes down to you know, looking at the details of something and it's not really clarifying it often, most of the time, you can just look at the sect of the planet. So when we talk about, you know, houses and the topics of your life that these planets are going to be ruling, we have to understand that just at the base level, these planets are either working to manifest those things in a positive way or not. And so sect is going to allow you to see the baseline, like I said, it's going to be give, just give you that basic outcome. So there's a lot of minute factors that could, you know, affect that in some ways, but at the base level, this is really the ultimate consideration to take into account. Yeah, definitely. Um, so if you are looking at a natal chart wheel and you're like, how can I see the sect of this chart? It's going to be, is the sun above or below the ascendant descendant axis? Mm -hmm. So if it's anywhere in houses seven to 12 in that upper half of the chart, it's going to be a day chart. If the sun is below the ascendant descendant axis, anywhere in houses one through six, then it's going to be a night chart. But again, when it comes to houses one and seven, it gets a little bit muddy if your sun is in either of those houses, just because it depends on whether the sun is going to be above or below that axis. Mm -hmm. And even then, um, there's an orb. Um, some astrologers use wider orbs than others. But for a setting sun um, that's just about to dip underneath that horizon on the descendant axis, sometimes people feel more like day charts, sometimes they feel more like night charts. I meant a freshly set sun not a setting sun, like the sun is just dipped below the horizon. Mm. Um, since it's still going to be bright out, sometimes those charts are still treated more like a day chart than a night chart. Yeah, um, I think it's, I just wanted to say really quickly, like, I think a lot of people like aren't, don't have the like conception of looking at the chart visually as it depicts literally planets being up in the sky 
or like below the earth and we don't see them and i think it's like just it, it just compares to the whole idea that just as sect has been lost from our interpretation of looking at a chart so has like the astronomical view of understanding visually the chart and what it's saying like are these planets visible are they up in the sky or are they below the earth are they not and so that just being the gateway into um the discussion of the sect of the chart like it that it's so important to look at like you know the first thing when you see a chart for a lot of traditional astrologers is often the first question is what's the sect of the chart they'll just see is, is it daytime is the sun up above the sky or is it down below the earth like you said in houses like one through six and you did also raise an important point um about the whole question of the orb or the distance between the sun and the ascendant or the descendant so like you said when it's close enough you know before the sunrise it, there's it's still light out you know it doesn't just go from pitch black to a bright sky so that gives us this kind of question about well you know how much how much distance can there be to determine it as officially a day chart or a night chart and there's a lot to kind of think about and, and say with that because it really depends on your like lived experience with your chart after some time if you do have your son close to one of those angles yeah lived experience it plays like a huge huge role in it mm -hmm. um i have heard of other astrologers looking at the sect of other planets and like seeing if mercury is a morning or evening star and like just seeing which sect has more power in the mm -hmm. chart and that playing a big role in it other astrologers go more based off of the natives story and their life story and their experience like you were saying cam but i also know somebody whose son was seven degrees below the descendant axis and they said that they still felt like a day chart so it really depends yeah i mean i guess there's also just an important distinction to make that like it, it doesn't necessarily come down to feeling more solar or lunar in that sense, because what we're really talking about is either which planets act as the most benefic or which planets act as the most malefic. So if you are someone that has your sun in a tight degree to the ascendant or the descendant, what it really means to use your lived experience means tracking transits and seeing if Mars is making more difficult things happen for you, or is it Saturn? And so like, you know, we talked about at the beginning, they're in different groups, and we'll explain that. But at least just as a quick intro for people who do have their sun close to the, uh, to the horizon, it's going to come down to kind of testing your energies and your connection to those planets and which ones are being more benefic or more malefic. Yeah, exactly. And as you were saying, um, with the which planets are going to be more malefic and more benefic mm -hmm. um, for a day chart, the most benefic planet is going to be Jupiter, the most malefic planet is going to be Mars. For a right. night chart, the most benefic planet is going to be Venus, the most malefic planet is going to be Saturn. Right. And the difference between a malefic Mars and a malefic Saturn should be a pretty um, stark difference. It's the difference between being told no versus and like not getting an experience at all versus something going like extremely just like explosively wrong, you know? 
Yeah. For instance, if you're a day chart and you have your sun above the horizon, that means that the planets of the sect in favor or of the sect of the chart are going to be the three diurnal planets, which are the sun and Jupiter and Saturn. So in this case, the sun is the sect leader because it's the luminary. And then there's also one benefic and one malefic planet. So for the day team, the benefic is Jupiter and the malefic is Saturn. So even though Saturn is a malefic planet, because it's of the sect of the chart, because it's a diurnal chart, Saturn is on the team of the chart. So it's said to be the favored malefic or the malefic of the sect of the chart. And so in this way, um, Demetra George describes it as Saturn works more like a bodyguard for the native. So for your chart. So he acts more in a protective way um, as opposed to a planet that is working to manifest really difficult or negative experiences for you, which in this case for a diurnal chart would be Mars. Right. And then Venus would be the moderate benefic. Um, so it might be good things that are not quite as good. It's not going to be um, like a solid gold brick. It might be something gilded that's just got a layer of gold around the outside. Mm -hmm. So um, keep that in mind when um, looking into chart interpretations for just the opposite for a night chart, the sect leader is going to be the moon. So then you're going to have Venus and Mars part of the nocturnal sect, the sect of the chart. And those planets are going to be working together in favor of the native. So they're going to be grouping, trying to bring to fruition things that the native is uh, trying to achieve. So Mars might be more action-based. You have more determination. Whereas in um, and whereas Saturn, instead of working like a bodyguard, Saturn's going to be saying no. Saturn might be more like, a, oh, you can't get this. You haven't had this. So um, yeah. Um, and I think that kind of brings us to Mercury because, you know, if we're just kind of looking at these two teams so far, each team gets a sect light or the sect leader. So that's the sun for the day team and the moon for the night team. And they each get a benefic, Jupiter for the day, Venus for night, and a malefic. So Saturn for the day and Mars for the night. But where does Mercury fall, right? Because Mercury, as we've talked about so much now, is always this neutral character in astrology. And so Mercury actually will switch sect based off of what's called its solar phase. And we measure that uh, by seeing whether Mercury is going to rise in the sky before the sun in the morning or whether it's behind the sun and that we'll see it setting after the sun in the evening. So in that way, it's always going to be referred to as a morning star or an evening star. And kind of like how we were saying with um, being, if you have your sun really close to that horizon of the ascendant descendant axis, um, let's imagine you put your sun directly on the ascendant axis. Is Mercury going to be in the 12th house? Is it going to have come out above the horizon? Is it going to reach the, is it coming out first? Is it going to reach the midheaven first? And is it going to set first? Or is it going to be following the sun? 
And you can kind of use that same um, principle with every planet, which we'll get into a little bit more later. But yeah, and that will dictate whether Mercury is diurnal or nocturnal. Right. So yeah, I don't think we said it yet, but you know, if it's a morning star, it joins the diurnal team. And if it's an evening star, it'll join the nocturnal team. So yeah, and I mean, it's, it's interesting, because once again, we're relying on the visual astronomical uh, phenomenon of Mercury to, you know, appear early in the day, early in the morning, or late at night after the sun. And, you know, these considerations really were just not they they were just totally lost through the tradition and so looking at a sol the solar phase is is so important because it, it adds nuance to um to every planet's expression and its own gender in a way and so you know this could even be a, a good segue segue to kind of talk about the gender of the planets because um that also plays a crucial role into the way that the planets are grouped in between the diurnal and nocturnal sect yeah definitely um I think it's really interesting that on both the diurnal and nocturnal team, it's the malefic that is kind of the oddball out. Um, we have like the sect leader of the diurnal team being the sun, and then it, the sun is going to be hot and dry, and then Jupiter and masculine, and then um, Jupiter being the diurnal benefic, hot, moist, masculine, but then we have Saturn, and we've actually talked about this um, earlier today, but we both think that Saturn is more of a feminine planet. Um, I know that that's controversial, and I know that a lot of authors say that Saturn is masculine, but I personally think Saturn is feminine. But then even um, gender aside, Saturn is going to be cold and dry, so it's going to be oddball in that sense. Right, and you know, Saturn's gender has been debated throughout the tradition because um, Dorotheus includes Saturn as a feminine planet, and what that ends up doing is actually making a really nice balance um, looking at the the planets in, in the sect that they're a part of because when we think about Mars who's the malefic of the nocturnal team well up until now pretty much everything we've talked about with Mars is its relation to really masculinized energy or energy expressed in a really active way and so why the heck is that going to be in the feminine or the nocturnal team and same thing with Saturn. Why is this um, really feminine in principle um, archetype? Because you know, we, we in the uh, social planets episode, we talk so much about how Saturn's a container. It makes like literally a womb for life. It makes a restriction for something to kind of come from it. And so it it acts in such a a yin kind of way that it really mirrors how Mars is such an active and masculine planet, but they're both in the opposite team. And I think it really connects to their temperateness because um, when we think of the benefic planets, Venus and Jupiter, who are both warm and moist, that combination makes them both really moderate in the temperature of their expression. Because, okay, well, we think of Saturn, cold and dry, that's extremely... Um, it, that the temperature is just way off to the extreme of coldness and Mars being hot and dry, that's way um, extremely in the opposite direction of that. And so we have the benefic, benefic planets 
um, being benefic because of their their temperate nature, but the malefics are malefic because they're so extreme on either end. And so by being in the opposite sect, it balances that that nature out. So Saturn in the daytime is warmed up a bit, right? So that makes him a little more balanced. And then Mars at nighttime is cooled off a bit from his hot nature. So by them having really an intrinsic gender uh, that's being expressed so extremely, by us putting them in the opposite sect, it actually keeps it really balanced out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we haven't really gotten there. We haven't really touched with the exaltation or dignity scheme like at all, but that's also a theme that's present there where it's not necessarily what the planet is and what the planet is familiar with, but what the planet does best with. What can the planet utilize? Mm -hmm. And um, when you think about a desert and like during the day, the desert is extremely hot. It's extremely dry. And then at night, because there's no life, there's no trees, there's no moisture, the temperature plummets and it drops and it's just freezing cold and dry. And so that's that kind of like expression that you have of the malefic planets. Mm -hmm. And then you go to a tropical humid environment and you see tons of trees, tons of life, but there's no life in a desert. And so just kind of a more tangible analogy for that. Yeah, Yeah, no. And I think when we're talking about planets being like hot and cold, it's also just interesting that Saturn is like really the only cold planet because the sun is hot because it's the sun, right? It Mm -hmm. gives all life. It gives all heat. Right. The moon is warm because, well, there's kind of two main reasons. One you know, it reflects the light of the sun. So it does emit light. There's a warm nature to the fact that it's so bright compared to all the other planets, but also it's the lowest planetary sphere and it's closest to the earth. So different um, source texts would kind of write about how the earth would release exhalations of heat off of the surface that kind of bounce up into the layer of the moon and that the moon is like kind of helping to contain and, and keep some heat within like the that just that it kind of bleeds into the lowest planetary sphere and that those would kind of bounce back and forth a bit so the moon was seen as warm for you know its light but also its proximity to earth and then after that mars is obviously all about heat and jupiter and venus are warm because they can produce life so they have to be warm and wet and that really only leaves us with saturn who is intrinsically cold and also Mercury, who can be cold or hot. So it's interesting how the concentration of planets is mostly with, um, with, with hotness, and then Saturn's really the only cold one. Yeah, yeah. And I think it, when you think about the nature of a cold temperature, even on like a molecular level, like think about ice and like how water changes when it's in cold when it's when it gets cold enough it it gets these like nice structures and they're very regimented and they're sturdier but it's also buoyant ice is buoyant in its solid form and saturn also is buoyant if you were to put saturn in a massive cup of water saturn is less dense than water saturn would float and so i just think that that's interesting to consider when thinking about the presence of this planet not just being a part of the day sect but also 
in general. Mm -hmm. And like the combination of Mercury and Saturn both being able to be cold, I feel like really speaks to, um, like you were kind of alluding to there, like the crystalline structure that molecules kind of assume when they when they reach a balanced state. You know, it's not just mm -hmm. that it's stable, but it's stable because of its geometric um, organization and like it's it's balanced, uh, just like it's evenly distributed. Yeah. yeah, I get what you're saying. And so, in addition to the temperature of the planets being hot or cold, there's also the um, moisture of the planet whether it's moist or uh, dry and so the planets that are moist are the moon venus and jupiter and the planets that are dry are mars saturn and the sun and so i think it makes sense because all of the moist planets all have to do with um like life in a way and it's also interesting that they that venus and jupiter are both benefic planets and they're wet and so it's like that's something that's good like we need water to live to mm -hmm. be born like the it has to like a child has to grow um you know inside like a, a wet environment like it's necessary for like the gestation of life but then the dryness is like what what kills life and so we see mars and saturn being dry and also the sun which is interesting to think about too because i feel like that even connects to how some people say that the sun acts like a malefic I don't know. What do you think about that? I think that that is a very interesting um, way to say it. I think that the sun definitely can act like, like a malefic. Is the sun inherently malefic? I don't think so. Mm. Like just at face value in a chart, even in like a night chart, I wouldn't expand that. I think that that kind of becomes a topic when you have planets under the beams or combust. But then at the same time, when a planet is Kazemi, like then it's extremely powerful and it just it's radiating through the chart. And so... Do you want to define some of those things or? Oh, yeah, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> um, so under the beams, what is the degree limit for the planet? It's so, 17? Uh, it's been debated over the tradition, but I think most, <clears throat> most authors say under beams starts at 15 and then combustion starts a little bit closer to like seven and a half or eight degrees away from yeah mm -hmm. so that really intensifies a planet being you know it's ultimately it comes down to losing visibility because the sun is so bright and its rays go out so emit, emit so far from the sun that when a planet gets close enough it loses sight from our perspective so effectually in a chart it loses power in a way and so that happens and the planet is said to be under the beams or if it's close enough, like within eight degrees of either side of the sun, then it's combust. And that's like, it's really burnt up by the rays of the sun and it's really losing a lot of its power. Um, it can also mean that the, the significations for the planet manifest in a hidden way or in an unseen way. So if you have a combust planet ruling the house of marriage, your marriage, well, one, it might, you might not get married, you might struggle with relationships, or it could be like you elope. 
or you mm -hmm. have to go about your relationships in a hidden way, or you might have an affair. So that's kind of what happens when planets are under the beams. And so we'll talk about how to apply that to different house meanings later on, but it's like they become hidden, essentially. Yeah, um, drowned out by the sun, you know, and like, it makes sense because the sun is so powerful and is so bright. I don't know if the sun might have more negative intentions though whereas like mars like when mars is being malefic like mars wants to be malefic and has like negative intentions whereas like the sun it might be something that happens more by accident where it's like oh like i have to keep this a secret because i did a b and c you know i i don't know i don't think it's like a like you're not allowed to take this out by the sun's decree i think it's like a do you get what i'm getting at i mean i don't know if i totally agree though because like earlier in the series when we talked about the sun and the notion of like being regal or royalty and how like mm -hmm. it's kind of like a king you know he has the power to kind of diminish the light of the other planets that it's near he's like no you can't shine brighter than me like i'm the king right so there is this like not necessarily malefic nature, but it's egotistical in a way where it's like the sun is the sole focus of, of the matter. And so when planets try to interfere, the sun just squashes them out. So it is kind of like a malefic in that way. Right. I, I, I get that. But also, like, is the sun, is that really the attitude of the sun? Like, oh, you can't do this? Or is it just like, I can't help myself and like you just so happen to be caught in the crossfire you know what I'm saying and I well these are all things that you can also ponder yourself as you listen to this episode yeah it's not hard and fast easy yeah way to delineate really some of this mm -hmm. and it's it's hard to give it like a concrete answer because there are so many things that factor into the condition of a planet in a chart yeah um so we've pretty much talked about a lot of the conditions of the planets um i guess the other thing i would want to mention is kind of about how even though we're calling venus and jupiter benefic and mars and saturn malefic planets based on their condition um by their sign and aspects we're you have to keep in mind that sect is just establishing um really and, and Demetra talks about this a good amount in her book how sect really establishes a baseline for the planets to function at and then from there there's a lot of other conditions that apply that can alter that so if you have a malefic that's really well placed it's going to function it's going to be what's called a functional benefic it's going to be working to do good things for you but if you have a benefic that's really poorly placed it's going to be doing just as harmful things as a malefic can do so it's important to keep in mind that we are being like really clear cut about the intrinsic nature, but that just like everything else, you have to look at all these different criteria to assess specifically how it's going to function. So we can't just say, oh, I'm a day chart, Mars is horrible, because maybe even though Jupiter is the benefic of your of the team in favor, maybe it's really poorly placed and maybe your Mars is doing great and it's totally swapped. So it's important to remember that it's a baseline and there's a lot of conditions that you have to look at from there, but it's still super fundamental. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that 
exactly that is that this is a foundation this is fundamental and then there are so many ways that the planet's energy gets filtered down into our reality and whether it's going through like a good filter and you're throwing in some sugar making a malefic planet planet less malefic or it's a benefic planet getting filtered down with some cayenne pepper and now all of a sudden it's a malefic Mm -hmm. yeah always a lot to take into consideration but definitely Mm -hmm. effect is pretty much a primary factor and that's why we're talking about it now and not you know the signs yet because just understanding the planetary basis for everything then we can start looking at zodiacal dignity from there because if we don't understand the baseline of how they want to operate, then it doesn't make sense to keep keep piling on other things when really this is the first condition that people look at in a chart and that really determines the baseline of how the planets are going to act based off the sect of the chart. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you want to start getting into some rejoicing conditions? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So- I think just one more time, um, we should say, so the day sect, Sun, Jupiter, and Saturn, the Sun is the sect leader, Jupiter is the sect benefic, Saturn is the sect malefic. For the nocturnal sect, it's going to be Moon, Venus, and Mars, same order, leader, benefic, malefic. And then in a day chart, The strongest benefic belongs to the sect of the chart. So in a day chart, Jupiter belongs to the day sect. Jupiter is going to be the strongest benefic. The strongest malefic, the most malefic of the bunch, is going to be the one contrary to the sect of the chart. So it's going to be Mars because Mars is the malefic of a night chart. In a night chart, when you have the... The strongest benefic belongs to the sect of the chart, so it's going to be Venus, and then the strongest malefic is going to be contrary to the sect of the chart, so it's going to be Saturn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one final thing to just really reiterate, too, is that sect isn't about strength at all, and this is something I really remember that Chris Brennan emphasized just so much, like in his book and in his course, because we're not talking about strength at all. That's a completely different question. We're just talking about quality. So it's really not about quantity. It's the qualitative analysis of, is this functioning well? Are they acting in a productive way? Um, Or are they acting in a malefic way that's not supportive of generating beneficial outcomes for the native? Yeah, exactly. So that kind of brings us into looking at um, a couple of what are called um, rejoicing conditions. And basically, these are smaller modifications to looking at um, the sect of um, or the sect status of the planets in a chart, I guess is how you could word it. Um, So Demetra George um, in ancient astrology introduces a couple of different rejoicing conditions. So we're mainly going to be looking at hemispheres, uh, the gender of the zodiac sign, and also the solar phase. And from there, these little minor conditions will give us a way to see um, if it's acting more and more in favor of its nature. So is like Jupiter acting in a more and more consistent masculine diurnal expression, 
um, and or, you know, for instance, is Mars acting in a more continually feminine expression? We want to just see them basically be supported in these minor conditions based off of the sect that they're a part of. And that won't change for the chart. Essentially, with these rejoicing conditions, we always want to see Mars having the feminine conditions. And we always want to see Jupiter or the Sun or Saturn having consistently the masculine conditions applying to him. Yeah. So um, this is saying, like, is this familiar? Is this comfortable, basically? Yeah, it, it's like little modifications to the environment that the planet's in. Mm -hmm. So is it like, we know that Jupiter is going to be friends with Saturn because they're on the same team. But does Jupiter have these other minor conditions that are making him a little bit more disconnected from his friend Saturn and that makes their relationship more difficult? And does that make Jupiter communicate more easily with Venus? You know, so there's this kind of interplay here when we're looking at these, that's going to let us see a little bit more about the details of the interactions in the chart. Yeah, exactly. Um, so for the hemispheres of a chart, it's going to be, so as we were saying earlier, we'll use a day chart for this example. So the sun is going to be in the upper hemisphere, the solar hemisphere, the solar sector. Those are terms that you'll both hear used. And that's going to be in a day chart, the top half of the chart. And so it, you're going to be asking the question, is this planet diurnal? Is it in the day sector? Is this planet nocturnal? Is it in the nocturnal sector? Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of in this moment, in the moment when your birth was captured, these are no longer just traits inherent in the planets anymore and groupings of them anymore. When In the moment when you were born, was this planet in the hemisphere that it prefers? Yep. And so another thing just about the power of the sun, and I think we mentioned that in the luminary episode, but because the sun just simply just determines the sect of the chart on its own, um, same thing with determining which one is the solar hemisphere. So this is where some people might get confused because in a case of a night chart, when the sun is below the horizon, that makes the solar hemisphere, aka where the sun is, on the bottom half of the chart, which is kind of flipped to what we would think of, you know, because it's daytime up above and night below. But in a night chart, the solar hemisphere is below and the nocturnal hemisphere is above. So we don't want to necessarily say the lunar hemisphere because the, the moon moves around the whole zodiac much quicker than the sun. So in some cases, the moon will be right near the sun in the solar hemisphere. And so to kind of explain what that means for this condition is, well, that's going to be bad, right? Because we want the moon to be in the nocturnal hemisphere. Same thing with Mars and Venus. Right. And this has to do with where the planets were when you were born. So if you were to be standing outside and looking up, is it going to be the sun? in the sky or is it going to be a dark night sky mm -hmm. you know or is that dark night sky going to be below your feet in the bottom half is it below the horizon mm -hmm. so um thinking about the chart as the physical world around us can also help kind of conceptualize that a little bit more yeah yeah and it is worth mentioning that chris brennan 
says that hemispheres specifically, he does not regard them like to a very high power. He says that the original considerations of sect are more important. Did you say that he felt similarly with sign and phase, that these Um, were just very minor? uh, In his book, in the chapter on sect, I don't know if he incorporated solar phase as a rejoicing condition for every planet. Um, He talked about it in relation to Mercury, because that's important to figure out which sect Mercury is on. Um, but he didn't discuss it as like any old condition for any planet. He just talked about, um, I think, just the hemisphere and the gender of the zodiac sign that the planet's located in. Um, but yeah, so like we said at the beginning, these are conditions. So the primary factor here is the sec team. You know, is it in the team in favor or is it not? Other than that, we just have these minor little kind of tweaking measures to or tweaking tools to measure uh you know is it it's on the team but is it happy on the team or is it getting pulled to like feeling like it wants to be in the other team um or is it you know is it just following its nature naturally and that's adding to its beneficence um that's really what these conditions are for yeah exactly and then um did you want to move into zodiacal sign i was just gonna say maybe for the hemispheres just to spell it out really clearly like okay so if you're a day chart that means the sun's up above so you also want to find jupiter and saturn up there they will all like get a point in a way there there wasn't Mm -hmm. a specific way of counting but we're just saying for example um and then that means that we want to see the moon venus and mars uh in the other hemisphere so below the um, ascendant axis And then Mercury, based off of his solar phase, will want to be either up with the sun or in the opposite team. Now, that's where, at least for the question of hemispheres, it can get a little tricky for Mercury and Venus in particular, because those two planets are kind of tethered to the sun. So they never really move far enough away from the sun where um, they can be in like the other hemisphere for a long time because mercury will only move around 28 degrees away from the sun at the maximum elongation so there's only a couple times of of the year where there's that much separation between mercury and the sun and you know on top of that that there's enough time for the sun to set and for it to like really officially be a night chart and then for mercury to still be up there so that limits mercury to rejoicing by hemisphere to a really small amount of charts and even the same thing for Venus, because she will move up to 48 degrees away. But um, that's once again, still really limited because her maximum elongation, she doesn't get to 48 degrees away as often as Mercury does, because Mercury will make three retrograde cycles a year, which means it'll reach that elongation point and turn back. But Venus is much left less often. So Venus is even rarer in, in some cases to really find her rejoicing by hemisphere in a chart. Yeah. Yeah. Because the thing with her is at least Mercury, half of the time, he'll be a morning star. And that means he'll want to be near the sun. So it doesn't matter anyway. But Venus is always a nocturnal planet and she's always tied to the sun. So that means that there's always way more people that have Venus not happy by hemisphere um, as opposed to Mercury. Yeah, that is very true. That is very true. And I think Demetra even has a line in her book 
where she says like that that's maybe why so much people so many people struggle with relationships <laughs> and marriage is just because venus is stuck to the sun and that's not her nature so that's also just something to, funny to think about too yeah that is food for thought for sure yes shout out to Demetra. i know for yeah everything she's done and Demetra's work has played a role in this episode as the listeners have gathered yeah, for sure i would yeah. i of course want to credit Demetra and, and chris too for yes. all the work they've done to revive and, and spread a lot of the knowledge here absolutely us and many other astrologers are very grateful so do you want to talk a little bit about the next rejoicing condition yeah definitely um so this one is going to be whether or not the planet is rejoicing by zodiacal sign um or polarity is another way to portray it so um there are masculine and feminine signs and diurnal planets are going to prefer the masculine signs, which are going to be all of the fire and air signs in the, in the zodiac. So every fire sign, every air sign is going to be inherently masculine. The nocturnal planets are going to prefer the feminine signs. So there's going to be water and earth signs. And so Jupiter is going to prefer Leo to say, um, I don't Capricorn. know, Capricorn, right? Yeah. Anything earth. Yeah. Anything earth. Or exactly. Well, right. Well, that's, it's funny. Cancer. Yeah. That's why well, we're not even going to, it's, they want to be in, diurnal planets want to be fire, air. I mean, no. nocturnal planets want to be in water or earth. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Um, if you know whether one planet, I mean, one sign is feminine in the zodiac, you're just going to alternate. If one sign is feminine, the next sign is masculine and so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah, like you can count through. So like all of the odd numbered signs are masculine and all the even numbers are feminine because it'll always go fire earth air water so it always alternates um gender or polarity going to the next sign yes exactly and then so i mean that one's pretty simple they just mm -hmm. want to be with whichever polarity they prefer yep. and then did you want to welcome, welcome us into solar phase sure and uh yeah this isn't too different from what we've already talked about because this is the same idea of looking at um, how we assessed whether Mercury was uh, on the diurnal team or the nocturnal team based off of, like I mentioned, the solar phase. So we can look at that for all of the planets. And the easiest way to do this is look at your chart. It's best if you can like have a phone or a, something printed out to hold it physically and just in your hands, rotate it so that you imagine the sun is right on the ascendant degree. So if you imagine in your chart that the sun is right on the horizon, which planets are above it, which planets essentially have risen before the sun, or if you want to look at it and put it on the descendant, which planets are behind it and which planets are setting after the sun in the evening. So this is how you look at whether a planet is morning rising or a morning star versus being evening, evening setting or an evening star yeah exactly yeah and so like we said before the morning star 
the diurnal planets want to rejoice as morning stars and the nocturnal planets want to rejoice as evening stars. Yeah, and so these are just extra layers of comfort and familiarity for these planets. Um, This is not going to be the same as like exaltation or anything like that. This is specifically for the sect of the planets and different conditions that they are accustomed to and would prefer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really just, I think, about comfortability. Mm -hmm. They feel like they're in their own skin in a way. Or they feel like they're an outsider. Right. Like, if I can't have my domicile, can I at least have a sign that is also masculine? Like, that kind of energy. If I'm going to be in a feminine sign and I'm a masculine planet, Mm -hmm. I can I at least be in the sector that I prefer? Can I at least be in the solar hemisphere? I kind of picture that energy. Yeah. And I actually had a crazy um, reading last week with a client who had most of their planets in all of the opposite rejoicing conditions. So I'm pretty sure almost all the nocturnal planets, which uh, included Mercury in their chart, so they had four nocturnal planets, they were, I think, all um, in the opposite conditions. So they were all in the solar hemisphere, they were all in masculine signs, and they were all morning stars. And so when a planet is debilitated by all of the rejoicing conditions, it's said to be ex condita, which is like out of its condition or completely out of its nature. So even though they're all the nocturnal team, they're all being pushed by the three other main factors of assessing like their gender slash their sect condition. They're all in like the most debilitated position. And what ended up happening is Um, this person's body actually produced too much testosterone and they were developing health problems because um, their body was physically um, not producing enough um, estrogen. That is very fascinating. Yeah. I mean, even just with the idea of like masculine versus feminine Mm -hmm. and having all of the feminine, I mean, having all of the nocturnal, which are more feminine planets being in diurnal signs and being in masculine signs and all of these like diurnal conditions producing more testosterone, which is like a masculine thing and then like not enough estrogen that is very fascinating very literal exactly it's it's really literal and so that really opens up a whole debate about you know gender in astrology because this could be a really good way to analyze um you know and and think about how you express yourself if you if you're a day chart but your son is in a feminine sign and or i guess using the sun is a bad example but ready let's say you're a night chart and your moon is in near the sun so in the solar hemisphere and it's in like a fiery masculine sign like Sagittarius and then on top of that if it's um rising before the sun as an as a morning star um it's it's ex condita so it's it's outside of all of its preferred conditions and that could in a way um create some kind of uh dysphoric or confusing connection between 
your gender and how you express yourself too. So kind of looking at all of your planets, uh, sect conditions could be a gateway into seeing why you might feel uh, like a stronger, uh, why you might feel like you possess or um, exhibit more masculine or feminine energies in your personality. Mm-hmm. And you might be able to recognize that dissonance too and see how others' expectations of you factor into that too. How mm-hmm. sometimes it can be others and how you are treated by others and stuff like that. So it's very applicable although there's lots of fine details and although they might not be the most weighty things in the chart they're still very relevant and you can recognize them Mm -hmm. and also like so on the opposite spectrum of a planet being ex-condita we can also look at like a condition for when planets are doing really well by all these rejoicing conditions and so a planet um so for medieval astrology we have two different terms for a planet that's rejoicing. One of them is being in highs or highs. And this is essentially if it's um, of the sect in favor. So planets can only be in highs if they're in the sect in favor. So if you're a day chart, first of all, only the sun, Jupiter, Saturn can be in highs or Mercury if he's a morning star. If you're a night chart, only the moon, Venus or Mars could be in highs. But then to be in highs, it has to be of the second favor and um, be in its preferred hemisphere. So for instance, if it's a night chart and you have the moon opposite the sun, your moon is in highs because it's the second favor and opposite the sun. If you're a day chart with Jupiter, um, one sign away from the sun and they're both up in the sky, then Jupiter is in highs. Now, if a planet's also in the zodiacal sign of its preferred gender, then it's in halb, which is just an additional condition um, that intensifies itself and expressing its nature in the most um, comfortable way that it wants to. Yeah, and we keep coming back to this word comfort, and that's really what it boils down to, Mm. is just, is this planet comfortable? Right. You know, and like with Mars specifically, the malefics specifically, um, but Mars in particular makes me think of like, if Mars is uncomfortable, if Mars is not where Mars wants to be, and it's the malefic contrary to sect, so you're a day chart, Mars is going to be your malefic contrary to sect, um, is Mars going to be throwing a temper tantrum? Is Mars going to be just like ravaging that area of life because it's not happy? Mm-hmm. Like, I do not want to be here. I'm going to burn this place to the ground is kind of the energy that Mars gives. And then Saturn being like, I do not want to be here. You're never going to have love like that kind of energy, not as extreme, but like you get what I'm saying, just like this, like. I don't like this. I don't want this. I don't want to be here. I don't like this energy around me. And that can kind of come up with the areas of life in your chart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we covered most of our bases um, for the, for what I had here. I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to talk about. 
we covered it all everything that I had to say even towards the end I felt like we were kind of running out a little bit because <laughs> I mean it's yeah this isn't a super complex um topic it's just one of the technical things mm-hmm. but really important because like sitting and looking at your planet sect conditions can explain a lot yeah yeah and especially, especially... no you go Especially if you don't know that, like, a malefic will become more malefic depending on, like, the condition or, um, like, just which malefic tends to have more abrasive tendencies in your life. If you didn't know about that and sect, like, that, like, will blow your mind as Mm -hmm. it does, like, everyone who learns about it for the first time. Yeah. And it also explains why some people say that they that Mars is definitely a malefic and other people don't feel like that a lot at all. Same with Saturn. Right. Yeah. I mean, some people that have just followed astrology and, you know, kind of feel like they have a relationship to the planets in their chart or by transits have an understanding of how they work with them. And, you know, maybe you find out you're a day chart and that Mars is an evil planet, supposedly, but you thought all along that it wasn't that bad. Well, you know, it also brings in this idea of, first of all, having to validate and honor our lived experience with astrology and, and be able to say, well, you know, this is what I've lived with. And so even though the textual tradition supports this, that I have to validate what I've experienced with it, but also that we do have to be looking at some of the specific details that can indicate why that relationship might be better or worse. Because when we look at these sect rejoicing conditions, and you get into it, you know, at a base level, yeah, maybe Mars is the out of sect malefic, but maybe it's in highs or in halb, and it's really comfortable where it is. So there's always, always a lot of things to take into account. But I think uh, this is a really important gateway into just getting a baseline idea for the happiness level of your planets, basically, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, this was a pretty good episode. Yeah, pretty I really, back. Yeah, I had a good mm-hmm. time uh, talking with you about this too. I felt like there was like not as much to say as other times, but there was some like technical meat, but I felt like we got through it. Yeah, well. I agree. And it was meat that had to be eaten because we we've been said we've said it literally every single episode. I know, definitely <laughs> chew this meat for a little while because it's gonna come up. <laughs> yeah, we're always gonna reference planets kind of based off of these sect conditions. We'll talk about morning and evening stars. We'll talk about um, and sign genders to hemisphere. We might not come up, might not come up as much, but but also always sect always always the baseline stuff yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly all righty well thank you guys for tuning in today um my name is stella yep my name's cam and uh we'll see you guys next week yep mercuranians out, out. happy, happy stargazing, stargazing. Bye.